I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to another episode of Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's episode is on the Black Panthers. We first go through the historical setting of the beginning of the Black Panther Party, who they were, what tactics they were using, what tactics they used, and what they did. And then we cover how the government responded and then how the Panthers ended. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, Garen, paint the picture for us. Where are we at in history and the beginnings of the Black Panthers? So we recorded an episode on redlining, and if you haven't already listened to that, that would actually be a kind of a good foundation for uh, understanding the Black Panthers. So I'd send the listeners back there. If you already have listened to that, um, this was kind of during the height of the, the redlining era and uh, kind of the urban, oppressed inner city um, where you had, uh, through mass migration, you had millions, something like six million black people moved from the south up to um, various, uh, south, uh, moved up north and also west to uh, try to find a new life outside of Jim Crow. Um, and then they were kind of forced into these inner cities where um, there was like all kinds of unjust laws and oppressive laws. Um, and so there was just a lot of, uh, angst among black youths who realized that um, the future is not open to us. Um, and so that that was kind of like one of the roots of the, the Black Panther movement. Um, also you had during this era, just like the civil rights movement kind of ran up against some limits to what it could really accomplish. So the civil rights movement was really effective at pushing back against legal discrimination um, so where there were laws that were unjust, the civil rights movement could just kind of uh, peacefully oppose those laws through nonviolence. And then white police officers, white people would brutalize the black people who were uh, engaging in the peaceful protest. That would cause sympathy from the larger watching world. And then those laws would get changed. But the civil rights movement couldn't really do much to push to push back against just kind of de facto segregation, just the daily ways in which white people hired only white people. And not because it was a law saying you could only hire white people, but because it was just the practice. And the ways that white people were just racist and would just uh, show favoritism, um, like white uh, life insurance companies would say like, no, we're not going to get payout on that policy because uh, we think this uh, man committed suicide even though he was killed by a, a mob. Um, like Just like the injustices that would happen that weren't so much law, but just like people making decisions. Um, the civil rights movement didn't really have a good way to address those. Um, and so then there was... Through, uh, because of that, that the Black Panthers was kind of like uh, a continuation or a branch off of the civil rights movement that tried to um, take on these other forms of discrimination. Also, there was uh, extensive police violence against black people. Um, there was uh, almost completely white police forces. Uh, the police were just at the beginning of being integrated. So you had police forces that were almost entirely white going into red line districts that were 100% black and just using brutal police tactics um, to uh, arrest, harm, and uh, often kill black people. So there's a lot of things from that. And then also this was during the era of Vietnam. Um, and during Vietnam, there was uh, just a lot of friction within society in general. Uh, something like 10% of uh, men... Uh, eligible for the draft were drafted during the Vietnam era. So there, this was the era of draft dodging. Um, and there was like 
not a lot of popular support for the war. Um, film was showing just kind of how dirty and messy war was in kind of a new way, um, just as more and more film and cameras were able to show the horrors of war. Um, so there's just like, it's a, I mean, that's kind of the setting. Um, what, what years is this again? Uh, so the late 60s, uh, really kind of starting 67 through 72 were kind of the, the peak years of the Black Panther movement. Okay. And then, so I think most of our listeners probably have the same um, picture in their head of the Black Panthers. And most of that comes from just like what they hear in culture and also maybe what they saw in Forrest Gump and that there's this Black Panther party. And I think even myself growing up, um, I mean, I grew up in the South, but it was Florida. So I don't know if a lot of people would consider that the South, even though it's like physically the South. Um would say that the Black Panthers are like this terrorist organization. And so can we, maybe we can start to talk about how, how they started. Cause you're, you're kind of almost painting a picture that they are trying to um, have, have some solutions for some, some actual real problems that are, that are good. And so I, I feel like at some point our listeners, you know, framework in their head of the Black Panthers and what, you guys are about to talk about are going to clash. And so I'm excited about that, but maybe we can start to talk about how did it start? Um, now that we know what was happening in the background of society, what actually happened to begin it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, um, I don't know the, it's a common belief that the black Panthers are the black equivalent to the KKK, which could, which is a complete lie. Mm-hmm. So um, go ahead, Garen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the Black Panthers, uh, who were they? I mean, first of all, the reason why they're called the Panthers, they kind of chose the Panther as a, a kind of a mascot or a symbol. Uh, and the whole reason behind that was because the Panther is, that, in their words, they said the Panther is like a strong animal, but it uh, it doesn't just go attacking people. But if you back it into a corner, it will fight fiercely. Um, so that was kind of the idea is they didn't want to like just you know, go in guns blazing, but they wanted to like basically s- stand up against white oppression and say like, um, like we will fight to defend ourselves if if you attack us. Um, and so one of the early tactics that basically led to the Black Panthers was that they would do armed patrols of the police. Um, so this was in, they started in Oakland in California and there were uh, open carry laws where you were allowed to carry uh, a weapon as long as it was showing. And the Black Panthers early on, they learned the exact laws and exactly what was and wasn't in bounds and what their rights were when stopped by the police. Like they learned what police can and can't do. So oftentimes police would just uh, take advantage of the fact that black people in the areas they were policing just didn't know what their rights were. Um, but the Black Panthers learned their rights and then they would enforce them um, with like even through threat of violence. Um, it oftentimes didn't overflow into violence, but but there are times when it did. There's, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, messiness to the history of the Black Panthers because there's also just diversity within the movement itself where some Black Panthers wanted more to operate within the legal framework and system to affect change and others wanted uh, more to do a full revolution um, even using like kind of guerrilla tactics. Um, but the leadership of the Black Panthers never went in the direction of like full-on guerrilla tactics. Uh, the organization, like the official structure of the organization always kind of stayed within the limits of the law um, and there were times that it overflowed into violence, but that was uh, like pretty much uh, always the Black Panthers. Uh, at least they're, they're, you know, sometimes the two sides would give different accounts, but the Black Panthers would say we were acting in self-defense. Um, and there are times where it's actually quite obvious that the Black Panthers were just operating in self-defense, and where you can see the government and the police. Uh, accusing the Black Panthers of having provoked violence, um, but then actually through journalism that was contemporary to that time, you can see like no, actually the police attacked first. So, uh, like, who started it? Like, are these just kind of normal, normal people? Yeah. 
Um, are they were they leaders in some organization? Yeah, who who was it? Well, Hugh, Huey P. Newton, who is also my fraternity brother, was one of the founders, and um, the Black Panthers. Like, and I know a Black Panther personally who is a registered nurse. Everyday people, um, students um, having just everyday, like very akin to the Black Lives Matter movement that we're seeing now was the Black Panther movement. Um, they were they were the forerunners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the I guess the the kind of dis- difference between the Black Lives Matter and Panther movement was that in the Panther movement, uh, it was somewhat broader. Like it focused started off focused on police uh, brutality, and so that's like a strong link between the two. Um, the the Panthers were also um, just pushing against the fact that black people in that day discrimination was a lot more extensive where black people couldn't even like go to a lot of colleges. Um, they, you know, there wasn't like employment opportunities and redlining, but it's like super similar kind of veins and, and themes that you'll see kind of connecting the movements. And part of the reason for the Black Lives Matter movement is the, the, the Black Panther movement, as successful as it was, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the fact that a lot of things actually did change because of the Black Panther movement. Yep. Um, like part of why they went away was precisely because of concessions that the government made in order to try to like take the, you know, the coal off the burner. Um, so the, but a lot of the police brutality didn't, get addressed, didn't get solved, didn't get fixed. And so here we are, you know, one or two generations later still dealing with some of the same issues. Right. Well, and the thing about the Black Panthers were, was that they used the Constitution and they used law. They they basically put it back up as a mirror um, because those rights weren't being upheld or uplifted for Black people. So they held it up and said, okay, our right to um, open carry, our right to, like, they used the Constitution. They used you know, state law, they they put it back in America's face, knowing that America didn't create those laws for African-Americans. They didn't create those laws for, you know, poor people. And and the uh, another thing about the Black Panther Party is that they their slogan was all power, you know, to all the people. Like, they really rallied uh, for America to um, uphold its uh, laws and its, you know, um, well, to uphold its laws for everyone, that it would be that, that you know, whatever America was saying, like, Amer- I'm, I'm getting all tongue-tied, I'm sorry, but whatever the laws were, um, that they would be upheld for everyone and not, um, I'm sorry, y'all. I'm all over the place, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. No, you're good. Um, so... The Panthers had, uh, like, just as far as, like, what were their beliefs? What did they want? They had a 10-point program uh, that in 1967 they kind of listed off 10 demands of the government. Um, So this kind of gives you an idea of, like, what they saw themselves as standing for. They said, we want freedom. We want the power to determine the destiny of the black community. We want full employment for our people. We want to end the robbery by capitalists of our black community. We want decent housing fit for shelter of uh, fit shelter for human beings we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of the decadent american society and we want education that teaches us our true history and the role of the present day society and our role in present day society we want all black men to be exempt from military service and the the reason why they wanted that was because they didn't think it made sense for them to fight to protect a country that oppressed them um and we want immediate end to police brutality and the murder of black people. We want freedom for all black men in federal, state, and uh, county, and city prisons and jails. Um, we want all black people, when brought to trial, to be tried by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. Um, and for context for that, um, I mean, even today, all white juries are oftentimes used by prosecutors who will use their peremptory strikes to strike all the black jurors from a jury pool, um, and all white juries are just known to be more likely to uh, more likely to convict and to give harsher sentences to black defendants. So even still today, 
there's this injustice that the Supreme Court actually created the Batson rule and said it's unconstitutional to strike all of the black jurors because they're black from a jury, but prosecutors still do it all the time. And basically they get away with it because unless you can prove that they're striking the black jurors because they're black, there's no way. And, and, and how do you prove that? How do you prove that they're not striking them for other reasons? When did that, when did that Batson rule like officially happen? You know, I don't know the exact years on that, but Radio Lab had a podcast called More Perfect that had a, a good episode on it. So if, if people want to search for More Perfect um, and kind of read about that or listen about that, okay. um, they can get it that way. But yeah, so it's, it's an unconstitution, unconstitutional practice that's still used even today. Um, and then uh, just finishing off the list of demands of the Black Panthers, they said the last one was, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Yeah, I mean, those all seem pretty, like... Not, not KKK-ish. Yeah, not, KK, not KKK-ish, <laughs> but also just like, I feel like most people would want those things. I and mean, an advocacy for everyone, not just for Black people. Um, and that's the that's the powerful thing about the Black Panther Party. But um, you know, they had a lot of enemies because they were black people mobilizing and there was such a tremendous fear, especially when we're talking about the sixties and there's already already the civil rights movement going on, and you have Malcolm X and you have these uprisings all over the country that are happening, and the Black Panthers, black men with guns, black people wearing all black with guns exercising their right to open carry, but carrying guns, that's like, you know, that strikes fear in the heart of 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 white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean if if you're just taught to fear black people mm-hmm. and then you see them with guns, I can't think of anything else you would even remotely think. But seeing white fear. people was with guns is like an everyday thing, even uh-huh. now, like on our square. Yeah, we um, saw that. Yeah, white people with guns is nothing but a black person with a gun. But just their boldness um, and just standing um, and, and calling for the law to be applicable to like black lives, mm-hmm. um, it, it, they, they were just really powerful. I have so much respect for the Black Panther Party, knowing the truth about them and not what, you know, um, the media and uh, basically white supremacists um, try to um, basically suggest, you know, the, basically what white, white supremacy says, there are, says they, that they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we've talked about kind of the time... Um, how they began. So let, let's talk about what they did. So mm-hmm. they wanted to, these 10 things are great. So how did they do it? Yeah, so it, basically in order to stand up to the police, uh, like first of all, that is just a revolutionary thing. And it did a lot for the the, the black uh, identity and pride of black people to be able to like stand up to the police in a way that they hadn't before. Because think of it, all of America's history up until this point Black people were forced into a subservient, uh, low kind of cowing position where uh, if black people stood up to the police, they would be killed and lynched. If they stood up to any white person, they would be uh, subject to lynching. Um, And so this was kind of, the Black Panthers were kind of the first time in American history where black people could kind of, without getting lynched, stand up for themselves and say like, no, enough is enough. And so... Black people all across the country, even if they didn't join the Black Panthers, there was like a sense of pride imbued in them by the fact that like here are people who look like us who are saying enough is enough and they're standing up and they're not getting cut down. Um, And so there was a huge support for the Black Panthers from the whole black community. Um, And then they also had other support because they opposed the draft. So they had uh, white liberal support. And also they, uh, they opposed colonialism overseas. So they actually even had international support. They did. International allies, international press. And because of all this support and press, and because they, had, uh, they published a, a magazine that had 150,000 uh, subscribers during its height, wow. so there was a lot of media attention on them. And because of all that um, attention on them, the, the government and the police were not able to oppress them all that much because they had too many allies. And so basically they had this kind of mixture of um, like all this support enabled them to stand up against injustice and brutality 
which caused more support to come because then people saw like, oh, they're actually standing up and not getting cut down. So like we want like so it kind of became like a feedback loop. Um, and it would draw in even more support, but then it would draw in even more government concern and police oppression. Yeah, just more which would eyes, draw more on support. Them. Yeah, and draw more eyes, more attention. Um, and so, uh, so, th- but they didn't just do armed patrols of the police. They actually did a lot of uh, social services for the black community. Community that, outreach. The, yeah, that the black community couldn't get from or wasn't getting from the government. Um, so. Here's this is a quote. Uh, people came with every problem imaginable. When people had been badly treated by the cops, or if parents were demanding a traffic light in North Philly streets where their children played, they would come to our offices. In short, whatever our people's problems were, they became our problems. People brought all kinds of problems to them: uh, job-related conflicts, evictions, rent, uh, like struggles paying rent, gang violence, safety concerned, legal and criminal justice problems. Um, whenever there were uh, consumer complaints, um, just like businesses taking advantage of people, issues with government or social services, uh, public and private utilities, uh, the underworld economy, the Black Panthers became kind of like the internal justice system for uh, black urban centers that were not given justice by the official system. They became kind of like a counter system to seek justice and uh, reparations within these urban centers. And they also started all kinds of community programs that just gave away food and resources. They had a free breakfast program that uh, just, and they, they had offices in like 68 cities across America. And, uh, and pretty much every one of these had a free breakfast program that just gave free breakfast to, to kids. They also had, um, let, me, let me just read off some of these programs. They had liberation schools, free health clinics, uh, free food distribution program, program free uh free clothing program, child development centers, free shoe program, free busing to prison program, uh, the sickle cell anemia research foundation, free housing cooperatives, free pest control program, free plumbing and maintenance program, renter's assistance, legal aid, senior escort program, and the free ambulance program. And all of these, uh, these weren't... uh, all programs that were in every one of those 68 offices, but uh, most of the bigger cities would have multiple programs that were offering like practical help and needs to the black community. What's so crazy, though, is that J. Edgar Hoover, he, of course, was, um, he railed against the Black Panther Party because of his fear of what, what he called the black messiah. There was just this fear with the FBI of, you know, black people mobilizing and specifically, you know, black male leadership that would mobilize uh, black people against uh, uh, white supremacy. Who is who is that again? He was like the director of the FBI. And so what's interesting is that even though the government was completely against the Black Panther Party, party the Black Panther Party, there were so many things that they um, implemented, the Black Pan- Panther Party implemented, like the breakfast program, that... Uh, the government, like, you know, different state government, local governments, that they would implement some of the things that the Black Panther Party um, had originated. And that's the crazy part. Like the free breakfast program, that's been, you know, implemented across the country in different school districts, as well as the Head Start program. Um, that's That was started by the Black Panther Party. So it's crazy that, you know, the Black Panther Party is, you know, started off college students, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale. They were both college students. They, they, they found this organization that has global impact and shines a light on white supremacy. The government is against them. But then after demonizing and criminalizing them and killing a lot of them, um, infiltrating, you know, their ranks, they then turn around and implement the things that you know originated with under the party um, un, under the organization. It's nuts. Yeah, well, and it was directly in response to an, a, an attempt to take support from the Black Panthers. So the Black Panthers won a ton of support from the uh, Black community. Even those who didn't join still like saw them favorably, and that uh, that support is part of what the government was trying to like erode. And so simultaneously, uh, I'll just read this. The U.S. government spent only 600000 on breakfast programs in all of 1967, uh, kind of at the front end. But then by 1972, 
after the height of the Black Panthers, the government-sponsored programs were feeding 1.2 million children. And then simultaneously, the police harassed people in facilities that participated in the Panther food programs. So there was this two-pronged approach of let's do, let's, the government will provide what the Panthers are providing, so it's coming from us rather than them, and we'll oppress them and uh, like the facilities or people who participate in their programs. So it was just like kind of like an obvious attempt by the government to uh, to kind of take away the support from the Black Panthers by kind of providing an alternative. But then still, like you got to kind of credit the Black Panthers then with those changes, exactly because it was because they were doing it that the government kind of uh, you know took took the baton and and actually got prompted and spurred into providing those services. Yeah, and what was so interesting is that everything, like so many things that the Black Panther Party did were like so constitutional that the government is like, great idea, but because you're black people, (laughs) we're going to steal the idea and try to squash the black people. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, as... You know, I've always said that I feel like I'm the target audience for this podcast. I, it's almost mind blowing how opposite um, my view of—I mean, not just this topic, but I feel like most topics we talk about uh, shifts and just from like you know the things that we've already talked about with the Black Panthers. I, I, I'm with you, Katina. It's like why would why would people be against this? You know, and I think that's a great question to kind of like ask yourself, why, why would the government be against them providing meals for kids in schools? Like, I mean, like really think about it. Like, I don't think there's like a, here's the exact reason. I think there's multiple reasons probably for that, but I think it's just good for you to do some self examining. Like, why wouldn't they want that to happen? Especially Uh, for communities that they weren't meeting that need for. Like, if you're the government and there's a group of people that's doing things for their community that you aren't doing, that's something that you don't have to do. So why why are you infiltrating? I mean, they planted like moles. They planted, you know, they there was this Operation COINTELPRO, which I'm sure Garen is going to talk about. But it's just, it speaks to white supremacy and the desire that black people not mobilize. There's a history of demonizing any effort to uplift black people um, and blackness, it, the social construct of blackness being created by America in the first place, in the first place by whiteness, um, and then for people who are under that oppression to come together and and want to serve their community is something that's seen negatively because they want to keep their knees on our necks. I mean, it's just that simple. It's it's tragic. It's sad, but it's like it's just that simple. But and then, of course, to have this revisionist history, um, you know, because you hear this a lot. The Black Panthers are just the just the KKK. So, are you acknowledging the horror of the KKK? Are you going to acknowledge that since you're saying that the Black Panthers are the Black KKK? But of course, they were absolutely not anything. Anything like they were the complete opposite of the KKK, so much so that America has modeled many of its, you know, uh, many programs and gleaned a lot from, you know, how the Black Panther Party operated. Can we, do you know about that? What was that? COINTELPRO. Yeah, what yeah, is let's, that? Let's go into that. Uh, so Hoover, uh, like Katina mentioned, was like in charge of the FBI and uh, kind of came up with a multi-pronged approach to try to get rid of the Black Panthers. So the Black Panthers uh, were considered a threat to the government. Um, I mean, they were doing armed patrols of the police, which the police didn't like, but also the Black Panthers, um, they basically wanted things to change and nobody likes change, uh, especially if you're on top of the current system, then you want to stay on top, so you want to conserve the cur- the current system, um, and so the, the they didn't want change. And also, the uh, black people in the Black Panthers 
were kind of making demands of the government to like uh, even things like uh, some, there were some people within the Black Panther movement that were saying like we should be um, kind of given like land and talking about reparations and uh, it was just like the government was afraid that there would be a black revolution and black people kind of like demanding equality, which was, I guess, scary to them, although it doesn't seem like it should be. Um, so so who were fought against them? By uh, There was this operation within the government called COINTELPRO. Um, and there were, uh, uh, I'll, I'll read some of the things that um, Hoover kind of like wrote a letter. So this is going to be quotes. Step one, prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups. In unity, there's strength a truism that is no less valid for all of its triteness. An effective coalition of black nationalist groups might be the first step toward a real Mau Mau, black revolutionary army in America, and the beginning of a tr- of true black revolution. So step one was keep all these black nationalist groups from uniting. Step two, prevent the rise of a black messiah who could unify, electrify the, black, uh, the militant black nationalist movement. Malcolm X might have been such a messiah, he is a martyr of the movement today. Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, and Elijah Muhammad all aspire to this position. Elijah Muhammad is less of a threat because of his age. Um, Elijah Muhammad will get into, actually, in uh, a, a couple more episodes, we'll be talking about him more um, when we talk about Malcolm X. Um, and uh, he said, King could be a very real contender for this position should he abandon his supposed this is in quotes, obedience to white liberal doctrines like nonviolence and embrace black nationalism. Carmichael has the necessary charisma to be a real threat in this way. Step three, prevent violence on the part of black nationalist groups. This is of primary importance and is, of course, a goal of our investigative activity. Step four, prevent militant black nationalist groups and leaders from gaining respectability by discrediting them to three separate segments of the community. The goal of discrediting black nationalists must be handled tactically in three ways. You must discredit these groups, and again, this is Hoover writing to the FBI. So he's saying you must discredit these groups and individuals to, first, the responsible Negro community. Second, they must be discredited to the white community, both uh, the responsible community and to liberals who have vestiges of sympathy for militant black nationalists simply because they are Negroes. Third, these groups must be discredited in the eyes of Negro radicals and followers of the movement. The last area requires entirely different tactics than the first two. Uh, Publicity about violent tendencies and radical statements merely enhances the black nationalists of the last group. It adds respectability in a different way. Uh, so, so that was like the memo that Hoover sent out, um, like strategically seeking to discredit uh, and and get the FBI to discredit the movement. So, what did they actually do to to try to discredit them? Um, well, one of the, the there's a lot of things that they did, but one of the things that they did um, that is just kind of like a striking example of the ends to which the FBI then would go to try to discredit and uh, disrupt. The Panthers. In addition to like sending in spies and infiltrators, um, there's a memo that they sent in 1969. Um, the FBI authorized the the sending of a fake memo that was deliberately trying to inc- uh, incite violence between the Black Panthers and a street gang. So they sent a memo to this street gang that said, "Quote, brother Jeff." I've been spending some time with some Panther friends on the West Side lately, and I know what's been going on. The brothers that run the Black, uh, the brothers that run the Panthers blame you for blocking their thing, and there's supposed to be a hit out for you. I'm not a Panther or a Ranger, just Black. From what I see, these Panthers are out for themselves and not Black people. I think you ought to. Kn- uh, I think you ought to know what they're up to. I know what I'd do if I was you. You might hear. Uh, you might hear from me again. So they sent. They offer, authorized this fake letter to be sent to the street gang saying that the the Panthers were going to put a hit on one of their leaders in order to try to like start violence between the two to then be able to turn around and talk about the, the, the violence of the Panthers and use that to discredit them. <clears throat> so, I mean, just kind of crazy to think about. Like, yeah. wow. our FBI yeah. sent a letter... 
to a street gang with a lie in it saying that there was the Panthers were going to take a hit out on them. I mean, just it's kind of shocking. Yeah. Um, in another incident, the police broke into a Black Panther house and killed Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, two Panthers, while they slept. Um, and then the Ed Hanrahan, the state, the state's attorney, so the guy tasked by the police with kind of representing the police, he said, quote, the immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants when shooting at announced police officers emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. So does their refusal to cease firing at the police officers when urged to do so multiple times. So that's the white narrative. But then, reality check, the Black Panthers didn't shoot at the white police officers. The white police officers broke into the house firing, and the, the New York Times actually did some good investigative journalism on this and found that all the bullet holes in the house were where the Panthers were. There weren't any bullet holes or shell casings uh, like indicating that the Panthers had even fired on the police. Panther survivors uh, hold that the police gave no warnings when they came in shooting. Bobby Rush said this was no shootout. Nobody in the apartment had a chance to fire a gun, and we can prove it by the fact that there are no bullet holes outside in the hallways or outside, just, a big, uh, just big gaping holes in Fred's bedroom where they fired on him. New York Times said, quote, most of the rooms and, wall, uh, and walls appear to be free of scars, pockmarks, and bullet holes. There were clusters of bullet holes and gouges of shotgun blasts in the places where the Panthers said that the two men had been killed and the four others had been wounded. There were no bullet marks in the area of the two doors through which the police said that they entered. Hanrahan then released through the Chicago Tribune uh, photos showing supposed uh, bullet holes that, uh, that showed that the Black Panthers had fired back. But then the New York Times did further investigation and found that those bullet holes were not even real, that the, that the photos were like doctored and fake. Um, let me see if I can find the quote here. Okay, the New York Times determined that many of the photos were deceitful. One, de- one depicted nail heads in the kitchen door jam rather than bullet holes. Another photo that the police claimed showed bullet marks on the outside of a bathroom door actually depicted the inside of a bedroom door. So then, uh, you know, Fred Hampton's parents had a memorial service for their slain son, and 5,000 people came and attended. And uh, Reverend uh, Ralph Abernathy, the head of the um, SCLS, said, if the United States is successful in crushing the Black Panthers, it won't be too long before they crush the SCLS, the Urban League, and any other organization that's trying to make things better. Uh, and you see, just like the, the Black community rallied around the Panthers because they knew that this is like a false narrative of Panther violence that's being spewed when in reality it is the government that was being like oppressive and deceitful and and corrupt. Corrupt. And what's crazy is that even after, you know, the, I would say the so-called glory days of the Black Panther when, um, the Black Panther Party, when, you know, um, some things tapered off because of all of the things that they had to deal with and some internal issues that they had. Um, like Huey P. Newton was, he, they continued to, uh, they continued to come at him. You know, they would trump up charges about him, you know, killing a prostitute or him doing, you know, and this man, he, I mean, he, he, he got a PhD. Like he, he continued his studies and got a PhD as he was being retrialed and re, you know, like trumped up charges. It was really crazy. It, 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 I keep going back to like, what about blackness is such a threat? I mean, what about blackness is such a threat that you have to continue harassing these people past the civil rights movement um, and just to try to make their lives a living hell just because, like, what is it about black people in America that we have to be suppressed and our stories have to be be altered? And, you know, like you would, that you would have to, you know, mock up images or fake images in a case. Like, how un-American and how unconstitutional is that? It's just... I don't know. Their story, I'm fascinated by the Black Panthers for so many reasons. And I followed their story. And of course, like I said, I know people that have been in, that were in the party um, in Oakland. And it's just amazing how 
their lives are just everyday people, college students, folks living in their communities. Many of them are the sons and daughters of sharecroppers, um, and they were furthering the cause of civil rights in their own way, and that the government, American government, would be spying on them, um, tapping their, you know, phones. And it's just, it's it's just, I mean, I, I really wish that instead of people just jumping to conclusions, one, that they would learn the truth about things, which is why we have this podcast to challenge people's um, ideas about things. But then ask the question, like um, Brad was saying, like, ask the question, why, why is what we know or what we think we know different from what is? And why were these people, you know, gunned down? Why were, why are they on a government list? Why, you know, it's like, it's just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the Panthers, like, sometimes when people are oppressed and have like no recourse through the official channels, which they didn't, like, there were times when the Panthers used violence to get what they wanted, and and like to some degree, it's like that's kind of understandable. It's not justifiable, like where we like would condone it, but it's like. If the official system is not giving you justice, then what do you do? And it's like to just like uh, attack the black that the Black Panthers for you know like armed confrontation at times with the police, without realizing like no they were like a panther backed into a corner and uh, like there was no access to justice through the court systems at that time. Um, then it's like. For people to just hear that and to think that it was the Black Panthers were the problem, not that the system was broken, um, it's just like the wrong conclusion. And it's the same thing today with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's like the system needs to change. And um, yeah, so and you that brings up a good. I feel like as a white person, I I mean I can't even imagine my rights. And the systems that I'm a part of not being just. Like, I, I mean, I can't even, to some degree, even empathize in a small amount with that. Like, what you're saying of, like, basically a, a group of people that get oppressed so much that even going through the, you know, quote, this is huge air quotes here, just, you know, process of even saying, hey, we're being oppressed or we want equal right, even equal rights, like or defending themselves. Yeah, it's like I mean, I mean, it's like I can't even imagine that. I think part of it is that we can't even, but like we have, we can't. As a, I, I, I don't even know what that's like, where I can't even empathize with it, and so it's probably just really scary to, and it's uncomfortable for white people, and and I always want to try to as much as we talk about. You know, because I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get pinned on us just like we hate America and everything we did was bad. Um, but like I, like I, like you've said plenty of times, I don't, I don't want to so blindly follow my patriotism that I don't see, you know, the unloving things that our country has done. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I think not recognizing that and not knowing that, and especially knowing it and then like kind of just not dealing with it isn't loving. Like that actually is not loving. You're not loving someone or even something like a system, a country, a state, if you are not going to deal with the hard parts of But just think about this, like patriotism is rooted in privilege. Like white people should love America because America benefits them. And even the poorest white person is not going to be oppressed because they're white. Black people, we're patriots in that we are pressing this country to uphold the, its systems on our behalf as well. Mm-hmm. Like for us, for that system to, to give us equal access. And so I feel like the true patriotism is for those of us who are fighting for um, the country and for the systems to work for everyone. And and to me, that's what makes the Black Panther Party so amazing. Like, to me, they are heroes. I mean, they weren't perfect, but what system is perfect? But 
if we can look at groups like, I mean, and, and there's freedom of speech, there's freedom of ex- expression. If groups like the Proud Boys and the KKK have a place in America to uphold the privilege of whiteness, black people who came to this country on slave ships for us to take the country, take the systems that were created to oppress us and to challenge the country to reverse those systems and that we could benefit from. That's true patriotism for black people to uh, fight in war, like go to war and serve in the military, knowing that um, you're because some Black Panther uh, members were former military, mm-hmm. like people who had served their country. And so for them to serve, you know, and fight for our country in other places, in other lands, but then challenging our country to see us as equal. Like to me, we I, I feel like we have a warped view of what patriotism truly is. And I feel like the people that we should be heralding as patriots are not white people. Like, because patriots of what? Patriots of you get everything you want? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's the people who are oppressed, who are challenging the country and challenging the systems that have been elevated to oppress. And for us to be pressing into that, and that's love of country. Wanting, wanting, when you love, when you love your country, you want your country to uphold what it represents. And to me, like this false sense of patriotism of, you know, God, guns and glory or make America great again or, you know, just like it's it's just crazy. Like you're living in a glass house and you have these other people who don't benefit for this, from the system, have been oppressed by the system, challenging our country to be, you know, America, the beautiful, beautiful, you know, God, you know, uh, liberty and justice for all. Um, like these are the true patriots. Yeah, I think the it's and we've gone back to this a few times, but yeah, just do we is patriotism loving the ideals of America and challenging America to live up to them, or is it loving America as it is and pretending like <clears throat> it doesn't have any issues? And I think it's definitely the former. The I just want to like, this was kind of like a, a thought I had the other day that specifically for the Christians, but again, everyone's invited into this. Um, in the Bible, there is just this constant reflection on the failings of God's people. And it's not hidden where you have like the Israelites had these like Psalms that were like, they would just sing these songs in their community, reflecting on all their past failures like, why did they do that? Why did God's people remember back to, like, was it because they were hating on their own Israelite identity? Like, no, they weren't afraid to admit all the ways that they had failed in the past. And they even wrote songs about and memorialized <clears throat> and remembered it um, because they, they, they didn't like have this, false idea like we have oftentimes today that we have to like pretend like we're perfect. They, uh, you know, had a relationship with God and they were like seeking to not go back and make the same mistakes and repeat those failings. And so they memorialized it and remembered it so that they could be better and change. Um, and yeah, I, so, I mean, that's a, a challenge to like, if, if you're a Christian, like the Bible does not dress up the failings of God's people. And so we need to like model ourselves after that and not like be afraid to take a deep look at the way that we like in America. And then also like we in the church have been like so complicit in all of this um, and all of this history. Yeah. And if you walk away from this podcast thinking that we hate America, like that's a, that's so false. I mean, Jesus looked over his, um, country and his people, and he wept. The scriptures record that, and Paul said that he would, you know, take one for the team if all his brothers brethren would be saved. Mm-hmm. To me, that's like the true, uh, the true patriotism. That's the true love of country. That's the true love of your people. Um, is to see them flourish in the way that they should, and to call out those 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 um, those issues. Um, where they're not being their best, you know, the best version of themselves. And I feel like that's what this podcast does. 
um, in black history for white people is that we're, one, telling the truth. You know, we're being truth tellers and we're calling our listeners to hear and listen to the truth and not what they've been fed. Um, we're calling us to undo the work of white supremacy and racism um, in our in our view and in our hearts. But then, you know, we're calling for um, our listeners to take action by taking what you know, like what you can read and what you have access to. Like, you don't even have to listen to us. You can go, what we say, you can fact check. And by taking that and let, letting that spur you on to action, um, in the, like for Christian listeners, in the name of Jesus, to walk in that truth, um, and, which I think is the greatest measure of, of love, you know, for, for your fellow man, for your country. Um, I, I feel like it's the, the greatest act of, of, of being patriots, mm-hmm. you know, of patriotism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, let's wind this down. Where are the Black Panthers today? What what happened? Where did it end? Yeah, so it faded out largely because of concessions that the Black Panthers gained for Black America, um, and so there was the there was kind of three allies. There was like the the allies were the kind of moderate Black community, the international allies, and the uh, like the liberal anti draft community. Well, so the draft ended. Nixon kind of wound that down, ended the draft. And so that community kind of ceased to be an ally for the Panthers. The international relationships kind of shifted and changed um, as kind of colonialism wound down. And so the international allies, you know, kind of broke their alliances with the Panthers because they wanted to like have official U.S. government support. Um, And so that kind of prong ended. And then the government basically made concessions to the moderate black community in order to kind of break the strength of that alliance with the Panthers. And once those, once that all that support for the Panthers ended, the government was able to get away with more kind of brutal suppression tactics because there wasn't a spotlight on it. And so then the Panthers then basically just kind of faded away, um, both through the loss of support financial support and through like they couldn't stand up against the government in the way that they could before. So it faded, but just to kind of focus in on like some of those concessions that were made, um, like black people won electoral representation that they had not really had access to. Um, they, I didn't realize this. Nixon actually passed a lot of affirmative action uh, for black communities, letting them get government jobs, government employment opportunities college access. I did not know that that had started through Nixon, but it was partly because he was trying to peel support away from the Black Panthers um, that he, you know, passed some of those measures. Um, So Black people gained employment opportunities, college access. Um, The government started to do like food programs and provide a lot of the support that the Black Panther programs had been providing. Um, The draft wound down, international kind of alliances changed. So then the Black Panthers just kind of faded, but to some degree, because they had accomplished their job in a way. Well, and I think that they were weakened um, by the government because there was so much international attention on, like during the 60s, there were so many different elements of civil rights and human rights going on from black organizations and leaders, like giving this international attention and saying, oh, oh, America isn't all it's, you know, chalked up to be. So then America is ashamed, you know, well, shame, mm-hmm. ashamed to the point that it's like we got to do something to better and, and improve relations and show people that we're not monsters. So then they do the status quo and the bare minimum, but some of those efforts were to weaken, you know, uh, uh, black organizations and leaders and um, systems that were set up to uh, uplift uh, black people. And so with the Black Panthers specifically, that's what that was. It was it was more so like you were saying what what the things that Nixon implemented um it was a part of like Lee Atwater was one of uh Nixon's uh uh people um 
in, uh, no, he was one of Reagan's people, but there was this, when we see the shift from the Democratic Party uh, of the South shifting to the Republican Party, a lot of it was them trying to change the language so that they didn't appear overtly racist. And so that you see this shift that's happening, and then it's like this elusive type of racism where the language changes, but the systems are still in place. And so Black Panthers were weakened. Um, because it's like, we're going to give you to the, what you want to this extent, and then we're going to continue to criminalize these people and harass these people, and then they just kind of disappear because black su- success and you know assimilation and opportunity and affirmative action happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, during, like, historical context at that time was there's this massive global kind of struggle between capitalism and communism, um, and the you know America was trying to recruit countries towards capitalism, and Russia was trying to recruit companies towards communism, and the communists all around the world were using the imagery of oppression of black people in America to like recruit people to communism and exactly. say like, look, America is claiming to mm-hmm. be like this beacon on a hill, but look how they treat minorities who look like you. Mm-hmm. Like look at like clear like here's what's actually going on under the hood over there. And and it was successful propaganda showing the hypocrisy of America and of capitalism. And so then America then responded by like addressing some of it and like, uh, you know, ending Jim Crow laws and ending, um, you know, some of like the, the you know, integration. Um, so, but a lot of that was done not because... Nixon had this like soft spot in his heart where he like had this change of heart and repented. It was, it was done because like he was tactically trying to like be just the right amount of racist that, that like met his goals, his like the things he cared about. Like he was making concessions tactically, not because he cared at all about the black community, but because it's what needed to happen to like further his interests. Um, and there's and that's like kind of been all all along. There's never been a true repentance on the part of no. mainstream white America for like any like things have gotten better over time because just like you know for ta- tactical or selfish reasons, like white people wanted to like hire black people in factories because there was labor shortages, so black people gained the right to work in factories. But it's not like we're sorry for how we treated you that we haven't let you work in factories. It's like, no, I need the labor and I can hire you for half of what I can pay an immigrant yeah. who's white. And so we see this shift where there's it's the same type of, it's, it's basically slavery by another name, so to speak, or racism by another, by other tactics. Um, because they have to grapple with here we are and we can't look bad. And like you said, communism, you know, and America is so like, this is communist. This is like, there was so much of, so much of a tremendous fear of communism. So they can't be, you know, look, they, they can't be um, looked down on um, by communists. So they have to placate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I want to just say a couple of things about the Black Panther Party um, one thing that they did that I really loved also, you know, was that they they uh, amplified the voices of black women and they amplified, uh, they, 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 they pressed into this movement of black beauty. Black is beautiful. Uh, you know, uh, women being able to wear their, black women wearing their hair naturally um, because black women, you know, they're, we're pressing our hair, perming our hair and perming back then, you know, that was like, it, it was extremely dangerous, like lie and all these harsh chemicals that we see now um, have impacted black women's health systemically. But just this whole movement of beauty and, and self-love, um, of, of black being beautiful, of black women being beautiful, and, that the, and, and shifting the narrative about the standard of beauty. The Black Panther Party had such a tremendous uh, impact on like the Black is Beautiful movement. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black History for White People. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. Remember that for $5 a month, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. There you can vote on monthly topics, 
have access to full interviews, and even get some behind-the-scenes video updates from us semi-monthly. On our next episode, we interview Harry Eady of the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation, and we present to him all the money that our patrons raised over the past 10 episodes. We leave you with this quote from Malcolm X. You're not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you can't face reality. Wrong is wrong no matter who does it or who says it. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.